The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. The West Virginia Mountaineers defeated the Kansas Jayhawks 34-28. to This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right. It certainly wasn't in dominating fashion, but the Mountaineers emerged victorious in a must-win game. Some very encouraging things to take away from this game. And although I'm pumped to watch West Virginia play in a bowl game this year, especially after starting two and four, it's hard to ignore some of the concerns and issues that this team still has after watching that game. So what are your thoughts on the game? Yeah, it was a little uh, bittersweet. Um, you know, just we won. We got bowl eligible, which was nice. We got to see Letty cross a 1,000 yards. But the way that we won, um, the closeness of the game, um, you know, at times what it felt like we could have done a little bit more to kind of put our foot on their neck, so to speak, um, left a lot to be desired, especially against a team like Kansas, who has improved over the past few weeks. But um, offensively, um, w- they weren't really doing things that made you think that the game would be that close. Um, it was just little things that WV was doing to shoot itself in the foot. So um, those ugly mistakes rear their heads again. Um, they always seem to do it at the most inopportune times for WVU. So yeah, that's um, bittersweet is the best way I could describe it. Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore with you. You know, West Virginia, like we said, was two and four at one point. They finished four and two. So when you look at it that way, it sounds good. But uh, the the Mountaineers only beat one team with a winning record this year. That was seven and five Iowa State. Definitely happy. We're playing in a bowl game. But this year has been an emotional roller coaster and. Uh, you know, we're going to dive into the stuff that we liked. I mean, there were a lot of good things to take away from that game. Tony Mathis, um, and, but there was also concerns. We're going to dive into that in a little bit. But before we get in to the Kansas game, we wanted to acknowledge some of the craziness going on in college football's coaching carousel right now. So uh, first off, we'll break it down each thing that's been happening. Lincoln Riley left the Oklahoma Sooners for sunny Los Angeles. He took the once prestigious USC job, and he took his top assistants with him. Not only his coaches, but a five-star quarterback recruit has announced he'll be following Riley to USC as well. So Oklahoma is currently without a head coach, and more than likely they're going to lose some more big-name recruits. What are your thoughts on Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley? A little bit. Um... You know, before whenever we get to Brian Kelly, I would say that's a little bit more Rich Rod esque, but still, with Lincoln Riley sneaking out in the dead of night with his, uh, you know, assistant coaches on that that jet to get out of town, um, it's just kind of mind blowing to me that you know these coaches who still have things to play for, they still have bowl games coming up that are leaving now. I mean, obviously, if you're Lincoln Riley, you can't turn down that deal. I mean, he gets access to their private jet. Um, USC is buying his houses in Oklahoma and paying uh, over $500,000 over asking for each. And they're also buying him a $6 million home in LA. I mean, he hasn't made it. They they made him a deal he couldn't refuse. 
Um, and he's in a much more fertile recruiting ground. I mean, when's the last time you were, you've seen, you know, a handful of top tier players come out of Oklahoma. Now he's in the hotbed of recruiting and he's in a conference that, um, is probably much more winnable than either the big 12 or the sec, which he was bound to wind up in, you know, it could potentially be something where he, just like he was doing in the big 12. Um, winning consistently, getting first place, getting those college football play playoff appearances, but all of these additional benefits and the money and recruiting areas doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be able to match up against those SEC schools, even though he is avoiding them for now. Um, he's still going to have to probably end up playing Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, and Dabo Sweeney um, at some time again. Um, and it, you know, if he doesn't still, if he doesn't win a national championship. You know, what's the perception going to of him going to be across the country and especially at USC when they're paying him $12 million a year? So a lot of pressure on him. Um, but if they're going to be patient for him and be okay with him not necessarily winning a national championship in the first few years at least, then, you know, it could work out pretty well for USC. And obviously it works out great for Riley. Yeah, 100%. It's hard to turn that deal down. $12 million a year. Like you said, that is the hotbed for recruiting. A lot of those Southern California kids have been leaving and going to other top schools. And so it's not like he couldn't pull in those top kids at Oklahoma. But I mean, you have the appeal of Los Angeles for these kids. You have the appeal that they're pretty much by their hometown since a lot of them live in Southern California. California already so it's a lot easier to get recruits to come there rather than out in the middle of Oklahoma and plus I mean they were talking about private jets for his whole family to use we already said like the 12 million I think that would what was he making at Oklahoma do you remember I think that's double I don't remember um it's probably close to double another interesting thing too um not related to Lincoln Riley but actually Nick Saban will be getting a raise because he actually his contract says something along the lines of he has the his salary is the average of the top three or top five highest paid college football coaches in the nation or something along those lines. So anytime someone gets paid, he gets a raise. So good for Nick Saban. And that's a great contract. to have. Heck, yeah. Yeah. I saw Jumbo Fisher just got a big extension as well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I mean, everyone's getting paid right now. It's it's insane. But um, Lincoln Riley, I mean, I don't blame him. We might be reading into this too much. Maybe he just saw the money and knew it would be easy to recruit and went. But um, yeah, you brought up a good point that I'm wondering if he's looking at the SEC and wondering if he has the ability to compete there with some of the other big schools. I mean, Texas A&M is paying Jimbo Fisher all that money, and I think he's doing a great job there. But it's not like they're winning conference championships or making it into the college playoffs. And so even though you're a, a good coach, you're at a good school, the SEC is just a whole different animal. You can't just win it every year like he's doing over there in Oklahoma. Not unless, not unless your name's Nick Saban, it seems like, because it's him, it's Georgia, LSU. It's the big names every year taking that. So I'm sure that played a factor into it as well, because he's practically going to a conference that will be the new Big 12 that you can dominate, because there's really no one there that's super scary for him to compete against as of right now, not unless one of those schools or coaches emerge. So, um, yeah, I mean, I know Oklahoma fans 
are super angry about it. But as a West Virginia fan, it's pretty hard for me to find sympathy for Texas or Oklahoma at this point. I'm kind of sitting back and loving what's going on at those two schools since they've announced that they're leaving us. Oh, same, 100%. I mean, um, for, for all the work that the SEC did with ESPN to try to destroy the Big 12, I love that they're going to end up potentially getting two below average products. I mean, Oklahoma is still going to be probably above average, but Texas is just in the dumps right now. And I'm not sure if there's a light at the end of the tunnel coming anytime soon. Um, so, I mean, I feel great, especially for Texas, because I hate them more than anything. Um, and the SEC, I mean, they can they can suck eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Well, speaking of them, um, the second domino to fall was after 12 seasons. Brian Kelly is leaving Notre Dame to coach LSU. Um, and honestly, this one probably shocked me a little more than Lincoln Riley leaving. Uh, from what I'm reading, Coach Kelly will make nearly $10 million a year at LSU. So once again, I'm sure money was a big factor in this. But also, uh, I wonder if Brian Kelly was thinking almost the opposite, that he's at a school like Notre Dame where they are winning 10 or more games nearly every year, and he's still not getting that invite into the college playoffs consistently so i wonder if that was in the back of his head that if he goes there and can win more than likely he's going to get that invite uh but it's no wonder these coaches are bolting i don't blame them these contracts are ridiculous man i mean they're making more than uh, just about all nfl coaches right now it's insane what's going on oh yeah it's crazy and you know with brian kelly i i look at notre dame as one of those jobs that it's a lifetime job i mean um, I was reading an article on the ringer today, which I sent to you that said, uh, this was the first time a coach from Notre Dame has left for another college football coaching gig since before Newt Rockney stepped foot mm-hmm. on campus. Um, so that's before world war one. Um, that's how long ago a coach has been bold enough to leave that job willingly to go to another college football. I mean, team, I mean, that it's kind of the gold standard. I mean, you can go in every pocket of the country and it seems like there's no Notre Dame fans somewhere. Everyone knows the golden domes, you know, they have movies written about it. Um, and you know, you're an independent, so you can schedule whoever you want. You can travel across the country, bring whoever you want into your stadiums. And you know, you, you do get national recognition. You have your own separate TV contract with NBC to televise your games. Um, it's kind of like being the Cowboys. Um, and Brian Kelly, you know, Despite, you know, maybe not necessarily being in the college football playoffs every year, um, he does have five straight 10-win seasons there. Um, he has two college football playoff appearances. Um, before the college football playoff, he did ha- take them to a national title game and lost. But, I mean, it seems like he did everything that you kind of needed needed and wanted to do as a coach. Um, so, I mean... Maybe he's ambitious and he feels like there's a better chance to win at LSU with all the talent that ends up there because it is a hotbed for recruiting. Um, and that's what he wants to do. But it seems like if you just kind of want to sit up in South Bend, take it easy, win some games, um, and have a chance of making the college football playoff every couple years and having job security, um, Notre Dame seemed like the place to do it because I don't think they were going to kick him out, out the door anytime soon. No, as much as their fans uh, would have loved to. I don't think that the administration at Notre Dame 
would have. I don't know if any of the listeners live by Notre Dame fans because they're all over. So more than likely you do. But all I've heard since Brian Kelly's been there is how much they hate him. And so I can't wait to see what they get next because careful what you wish for. If I recall before Brian Kelly, I mean, there was like Williams, Charlie Weiss. Uh, wasn't there uh, Bowie Davis? Nick someone Graham. like that. Yeah. I mean, all these guys who just really couldn't even do nearly what Brian Kelly was doing on a year to year basis. Sometimes uh, careful what you wish for wanting a coach to leave. It'll be real interesting to see who goes to Oklahoma and Notre Dame. I haven't dig too much into either one. Notre Dame a little bit. I mean, Mark Stoops name is out there. Um, who's the other big name? Josh. Uh, yeah. So um, it'll be interesting to see who steps up and takes those jobs, but uh, it's getting crazy. Yeah. And at first, honestly, I was kind of wondering what would happen at WVU because Mark Stoops has that connection to Oklahoma. There's a lot of speculation that he would leave Kentucky to go to Oklahoma. Um, he just signed an extension, so it doesn't seem like that's happening. But the the potential domino effect there is, it, you know, there are reports saying that Kentucky really wants Neil Brown because they feel like he would be a lifer and he'd be able to pick up where Stoops left off. Um, so then that would directly affect us if that would potentially happen. So all these different pieces that could have potentially fell just by these two moves is just crazy. And then, you know, thinking about it too, like if Notre Dame would somehow some way make the playoff, and Brian Kelly's already gone, what happens then? Who's coaching the team, you know? Um, who can step in? Um, do they hire an interim coach? Um, it's it's going to be really interesting there. Um, and then if Fickle would end up taking that job um, after what he did at Cincinnati and coming into the Big 12 soon, that makes that those moves that the Big 12 made a little bit weaker as well. So um, just so many different shockwaves that – just get sent by these two moves and the amount of money these big programs are doling out to try to win now and turn around their programs. And I don't think this is an anomaly either. I think these big programs are going to continue to do this, especially if this works out. If Brian Kelly or Lincoln Riley win a national championship in the next five years, I think every big program that has massive donors is going to start throwing their money around like this. Um, and it's going to be tough for schools like WVU. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, we've always kind of been on the outside looking in when it comes to, you know, paying a bunch of money to these names. But it's kind of crazy that we're seeing them making almost lateral moves from one huge school to another. Jimbo Fisher kind of started this trend a few years ago, going from Florida State to A&M. But, uh, you know, two back to back like this, it's pretty crazy. Um, for those of you who don't know, Coach Brown um, he played at Kentucky. I think he coached there for a little bit. And uh, that's where he grew up. So if he would decide to go there, you know, I mean, obviously this is a stretch because it doesn't look like Stoops is leaving. I wouldn't blame him. I really wouldn't. I mean, it would be like if a West Virginia guy left and came to us. So I would understand the decision. But uh, yeah, this is crazy. And you brought up a really good point about if uh, Luke Fickle leaves Cincinnati, how that would actually weaken um, some, you know, Cincinnati and maybe some of the other teams coming in. I did, I didn't even think about that consequence. So it's kind of crazy. I don't know. We'll see how it all shakes out in these next couple of weeks. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see how it, um, shapes up and, you know, I, I'm hoping that, you know, we're, we're able to keep Neil Brown for a couple more years. And then if we have to hire someone else new, 
it's something that can stick around long enough to continue to build us up and we can at least get a reputation as a as a school that is a good resume builder i mean because right now looking at the college coaches um out there and trust me i did a couple hours of research before this to see is there any wvu alumni who are in in, in any sort of like positions of power within you know division one college football and there's really not many i mean there's some position coaches out there like a die and justice but head coaches and coordinators it's thin to non-existent yeah for yeah. sure and um yeah i want coach brown to stick around as well at least for his five years you know i keep saying that i always want to give a coach five years get his guys in get his system in and see if he can um build a foundation that can maybe last a long time but you're right i mean a die I saw um, Brad even write an article about uh, Tony Gibson, which this is what I would like. I would like it if we get a head coach in the next couple of years, a new one. I would like it to be someone who has ties here just because that would make it more likely that their loyalty would really be with us. Like I said, if Coach Brown decided to go to like Kentucky or, or a school like that, I wouldn't even you know, I wouldn't have any hate towards him for that decision. It would make complete sense to me. Oh, same. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think someone like Gibson would be great too, but, you know, uh, just because of the connection and if he would be successful, he would stick around more than likely. But, you know, the, the, the only downside I see is kind of like the Bill Stewart downside, which is, you know, if you end up settling for someone who you only have because they are have close ties to the state because they won't leave, then you might end up being stuck in a rut where you're only kind of end up media being mediocre. So, it kind of puts WVU in a tough spot if this job would ever open up um, to figure out how you fill this role long-term because um, it just goes to show that these schools are willing to pay anything to get someone that they think can be successful. And if WVU would ever get to the point that we would all, that we all dream of, you know, college football playoffs, national titles, all that fun stuff, big 12 titles, even um, I can guarantee you one of these schools from the sec or the big 10 are going to come knocking at our door and they're going to get their guy if they want him. 100%. Yeah. It would be the rich Rodriguez situation all over again, but you know what? I'll take a few of those glory days again, just for for it to happen. Um, But yeah, this is fun to talk about. Let's dive back into the Kansas game and we can start with the offense. So um, let's talk about it. Cause like I keep saying good things and then there's some bad things that, that made this one a little bittersweet. The good things, I mean, season high, 261 rushing yards, dominated time of possession. Um, but some of the bad things, two turnovers. And, and you know, the first one didn't end up being costly, but they were bad, bad turnovers. First offensive play of the game, Letty fumbles the football. Luckily, the defense stops Kansas and, um, you know, makes them – uh, not convert a fourth down in the red zone. So that one didn't hurt us too bad. But then a pick six by Daggy, that was real bad at the time. Um, but some other good things. I like Neil Brown's aggressive play calling. He went for it on fourth down three times, converted all three. Definitely some good things from the offense. And those situations, they seemed like good situations to be aggressive. That, you know, we they were very manageable fourth downs. And it seemed like we were moving their line. So um, I did like some of his play calls. What'd you think of the offense on Saturday? I thought it was solid. You know, I liked how much we just ended up committing to the run and just, you know, deciding that this is what we're going to do. 
the one thing that kind of surprised me too was Neil Brown kind of likes to get um, too cute, I guess would be the way to say it. And that's, you know, trying to run play action or trying to run action off of the actions you've been running over and over again, because, you know, as a coach, those things help set up big plays, but there were times against Kansas where he would literally, I would watch him same formation all the way down the field. And he would run one of two plays and just do it over and over and over again, because it was working. And like the old saying goes, if it's don't, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And he finally kind of stuck to that today him or whoever was calling plays, I guess I should say. And, you know, Kansas couldn't hold it, hold the running game back. Um, you know, the one thing I thought was interesting too is, you know, the, the third down conversions were kind of low five for 14. Um, but when you take into account, like you said, those three fourth down conversions that you have, it's basically like we were eight of 14, which is a lot more respectable of a position. So, um, you know, he, he, played situations where he kind of knew if I'm in this certain situation, I'm going to go for it on fourth down. And he even went for it on fourth down a couple of times when we were on the wrong side of the 40 or off 50, I should say. So, um, you know, he was willing to take those calculated risks and it paid off three times. So um, I was really happy to see that because that's very important. I mean, you don't want to have to punt the ball away um, and, put your defense out there to kind of stop their team from scoring. Yeah, 100%. Uh, let's talk about Jared Dagey for a little bit. He had 170 yards, 80% completion percentage, three touchdowns, but then, like we said, that pick six. And I thought this was all very interesting because, again, we had good Dagey, then bad Dagey. He, he was playing so well for a, a big portion of that game. But then once he made that crucial mistake that he always seems to do at least once a game, Neil Brown, uh, I thought for the first time all season that we started this, he's starting to show his lack of confidence in Daigie, I thought. And no one's trying to say that a run-heavy strategy down the stretch of that game wasn't the right game plan. I think we all agree that that was the way to victory. I mean, they couldn't stop. Tony out there or Letty for that matter. However, he clearly didn't trust Daggy to throw the football ever again after that pick six, even on a third and five that could have ended the game towards the end there. Uh, he was perfectly content running the ball. And most people knew that the run wasn't going to get the first down there because they absolutely stuffed the play right before it. So I, I did think that was interesting because maybe I'm digging too far into it, but I thought that was the first time I, I thought Neil Brown showed that he has no confidence in Deggie. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, um, looking at Deggie's stats, if you look at his first half, it looked like he was getting ready to have another big 12 player of the week type game. He was 14 for 17 for 162 yards and three touchdowns in the first half. Now he did have a pass that probably should have been picked off in the first half, but it wasn't. So it doesn't count against him. However, like you said, after that interception, um, he did throw three passes after that, but he threw no passes in the fourth quarter. And in the fourth quarter, we had five third downs. All All five of those third downs were from five yards out or further, and we ran the ball every time. So that just, uh, it's, there's no other way you can really interpret it other than, you know, he just lost confidence in it. And the the one thing that I thought was interesting too. So Deggy threw the pick at 12 30 with 12 minutes, 33 seconds left in the third quarter. He threw three passes. All of them were completed, uh, but only for 13 yards. However, um, 
the one throw he made was a stop route to Esdale that was late. And Esdale kind of took a little shot in the back after he threw that stop route. And then, then another one was on a third down where Esdale was open at the sticks for the first down. And he checked down to Tony Mathis, who then got tackled short of the sticks. Um, and, you know, I think that pick coupled with, you know, those two or three throws after that, it probably just, you know, Brown knows him well enough to know that, hey, I can't, I can't trust him to throw the ball the rest of this game. And I think that's a problem to have if that guy's your quarterback. And um, I wrote an article uh, last week or earlier this week. Um, I forget which one now, but uh, about the quarterback situation going into next season. And there, there's speculation that the coaching staff is still uncertain about bringing Deggie back or at least bringing him in as a starter next season. And I think this you know, the way they approach this game plan after that interception just kind of goes to show that, that they're really hoping someone else, whether it be Green or Nico or Crowder, steps up and can take that job because Deggy definitely has his limitations. And if one of the running backs that we have coming in next year can't play like Letty did today or, you know, can't produce like Mathis did today because not every defense is Kansas, then you're going to have to lean on your quarterback a little bit more. And... I don't think Deggy is the guy you can do that with. And I think the coaching staff realizes that they've covered it up pretty well for the most part all season. Obviously the mistakes Deggy has made has been, have been big mistakes um, that you can't cover up and have lost his games. But for the most part, they've schemed him to, to success for quite a bit. So I think it's just a really interesting situation um, on the whole. And it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next couple of months. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll even be interesting to see what the game plan is in the bowl game. I mean, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We don't even know who we're playing yet. But, um, you know, it just reminds me of that Army game a lot. I haven't seen Neil Brown show that much lack of confidence in Daggy since that game. Um, so I thought it was very interesting that he just had no confidence and and willing to let him pick up a third and long. I mean, the run game was working. If it's third and four, run it. But, I mean, like you said, there were so many third and five-plus yards where, you know, we could have just put the game away right there, and Neil just was content running the ball and hoping that the defense stopped him. And maybe I'm kind of reading into things a little bit too much, but I think it's kind of interesting, too, that the trend where it comes to limiting Deggy um, the situations are in potentially season ending situations. So I don't know if we would start Deggy next year and he's bad again. Is Brown going to see him as someone he can kind of fix during the season? Um, or is it something where, hey, this is our last game or potentially last game of the season. I can't let this guy lose it. Um, maybe it's just, you know, unrelated correlation there, but um, just something interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but so let's let's talk about some of the positive things then. It was almost poetic how that game unfolded for Letty and Tony Mathis. Letty gets 156 yards for the game, 8.2 yards per carry, earns his second straight 1,000-yard season. It's what everyone wanted coming into this game for Letty. Then he appears to be injured, but I was kind of shocked. Coach Brown said after the game that that was the plan all along to split carries Kind of an odd decision, if that's true, to never let Letty really come back in. I mean, I'm fine giving Mathis a ton of carries because Letty's probably tired in the second half. But even when Mathis seemed to be, you know, 
a little out of breath because they were just leaning on him so much. They just never really wanted to put Letty back in. So if he wasn't hurt, I, I think that's kind of an odd decision. However, it worked. So good on Coach Brown. Mathis becomes the workhorse in the fourth quarter, earns 118 yards for himself, 5.4 yards per carry. And earning those yards in brutal fashion, just busting through tackles, tough running. I loved it. It it was almost like a passing of the torch moment and just a great story for the fans to see. And of course, great for Letty Denda's career. And hopefully that leads Tony into being our next star running back. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, first with Letty, I mean, he was incredible. I mean, that one, the fumble that he had, I I don't put a hundred percent on him. I think it was a a split between him and, and Deggy on the, the handoff. Um, but other than that, he was just dynamic, running hard once again. Uh, 44-yard TD run, um, what, probably his second longest touchdown run of the season. Um, you know, just 8.2 yards of carry. He just looked like no one could tackle him on the field, and he was determined to make something happen on every play. And then Mathis, like you said, just it's so much effort. Um, the only concern I have with Mathis is if he's the starting running back, Next year, can he do that for 12 games? Because that is a hard style to do over and over again. Um, But the good news is we do have a lot of uh, backs coming in and on the roster who um, can help supplement that. So um, I think, you know, he's definitely shown that he needs to be part of that conversation, though, because he looks like he has solid hands. He's a really tough runner. Um, He looks like he's fast enough. I mean, he had a 45-yard run today. Uh, or not yet today, but Saturday, but still, I mean, really impressive performance by him. Um, another player I was impressed with was uh, Sean Ryan, uh, five catches, 87 yards. Um, all of his catches had some degree of difficulty to him. Um, he was attacking the ball in the air. He had a really nice downfield catch um, where he had to shield off the defender and catch kind of like a, a jump ball fade sort of route from Deggy. Um, and he's someone we didn't really get to see a lot um over the season just because he was splitting time with Esdale um Bryce Ford Wheaton kind of took all the snaps on, at that x position and that's kind of where he played today so um I know in the the article that I did last week projecting the starters I kind of figured that he would be a non-factor and then um Prather would end up seeing the majority of the snaps on the outside but Sean Ryan definitely deserves a role I mean he looks like he does he's a quality outside receiver he has great hands. Um, he has some nice after-the-catch ability. Um, he just really impressed me today. Yeah, 100%. I had him in my notes as well. Um, and he's had some flashes of, of being a really good athlete this year. And it, this is a great problem to have. I mean, that wide receiver room is just stacked. And it just seems like you can plug anyone there, and it's not a big drop-off. So that is great to see. Um, Wright didn't get a ton of yards, but he had two very important touchdowns. So I wanted to give him a little shout out as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, one drive. what's that? He scored three times on one drive. Yeah, that's right. His penalties kept taking him off and he was determined. Um, that's all I got for the offense. You got anything else? No. Um, also kudos to the offensive line. Um, two sacks. One of those sacks was not due to an offensive line. It was due to, uh, one of our tight ends. So they kept Deggy upright. They did a great job blocking. Um, I know Zach Frazier just seemed like he was just busting up the middle and leaving ginormous holes for the backs to run through all the game long. So extra thanks to him for being so great. 
Yeah, I thought the line played great. And they, they played pretty decent in the second half of this season. I know some of the competition um, hasn't been as tough, but, uh, you know, you can only play whoever's on the schedule. And, and they've improved. So I'm hoping that that just means that they're getting better because they're gelling more. They're having they're getting more game experience. I'm hoping that's good signs for next year. But we'll see. We'll see how they perform in the bowl game. So let's get to West Virginia's defense. Up and down game for the defense. They seem to allow uh, the Jayhawks in the red zone quite a few times. But thanks to some red zone turnovers and forced field goals, they they played an above average game, I thought. What do you think? Yeah, I thought they did pretty well. My really only concern um, that they had was the chunk plays that they gave up. So they allowed three plays of 30-plus yards, and every time – they allowed up one play of 30 plus yards. Kansas would score on that drive. So um, just really interesting. I mean, obviously, I think the one big play that they had was because they were playing drop eight and there was just the hole in the zone. Um, and it was the end, towards the end of the game. So obviously, you don't want to let them score there. And that, you know, dropping eight is supposed to kind of help against that. But that's not really the end of the world, especially when time is kind of scarce. But the other ones were just kind of like, Seemed like people falling asleep on defense and not carrying their guy, not tackling well, um, which we've seen. Um, but that's also kind of a symptom of how injured we've been in the secondary. I mean, that was my wish for last week was us to stay healthy. And we saw Scotty, Scotty Young go down. We saw Mahone get injured. We saw Jackie Matthews go down. Um, I'm probably missing someone else in there too. But uh, yeah, um, it has not been a good year health-wise for this secondary. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I sent you a message immediately as soon as those guys started getting hurt because you brought up a great point. You you know, your biggest hope was you didn't want people getting hurt this game because uh, we were already so short-staffed, and sure enough. So credit to the coaches. I mean, people have been hard on them all year, but they've been put in some difficult situations with all these injuries, and and lately they've, they've found a way around it, which is the number one thing you you got to do. So for our defense, as always, the offense put them in some tough situations, the Letty fumble, the Deggy pick six, but they handled it. And, and credit to our defense all year for that. You know, they they never seem to have, you know, the boo-boo face or getting down on themselves because the offense is just continuously putting them in sticky situations that they got to work themselves out. And more often than not, it seems like they do. They find a way. And so a lot of heart on that side of the ball. Not, um, you know, they they just held Kansas enough to win the game. Not exactly what you want to see against the last place Big 12 team, but they got the job done. So, you know, I don't have a lot of complaints. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we did pretty good against the run. I mean, Pisick Hickson, I think that's how you say his name, did have 12 carries for 60 yards. But we also held Jalen Daniels to only nine yards rushing, which is his lowest of the season so far. Um, we also only allowed them to have nine rushes that went more than three yards out of their 25 attempts. So I think that's pretty good. Um, they did have some chunk plays, but, you know, it happens. Um, passing the ball, I thought we did pretty well. Again, it was kind of like, you know, we keep them in front of us or they get behind us for, you know, a 15, 20-yard gain. And Jalen Daniels is a good quarterback. I mean, he impressed me out there. He had some issues where, you know, he was throwing a little inaccurate, um, especially after we started getting some pressure on him. But overall, I mean – he, he has a really live arm. He really impressed me with the way he was running out of the pocket and just firing darts all across the field um, and finding guys down the 
down uh, down the field. I know there was a pass early in the game where he just tossed like a it was like a thirty yard pass down the middle to one of their receivers, and he jumped up there between two WV defenders and caught it. And you know, I think that's also a symptom of having someone back there that you want to play for. I mean, players play harder when they have someone out that they have faith in. And I think Jalen Daniels is that guy for Kansas. Um, he really impressed me. And I didn't realize that he's only 18 years old as a sophomore. He started last year um, at 17 years old in Kansas. I mean, crazy Great. young kid, a ton of potential. And uh, I know I'm probably spending too much time talking about someone not from WVU, but um, I'm excited for Kansas. They're always in the, in the dumps. And uh, I think J- Jalen Daniels shows real promise. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I have a lot to say about him, too. Uh, before I get into him, though, credit to Luke Grimm. That, Luke Gim? Maybe that's how you say it. Grimm. From Kansas. Yeah, he had some nice plays. He's the one who made that really nice catch. He ended the game with four catches, 105 yards. Uh, I was impressed. I mean, some of those plays he was even making, I wasn't even mad at our defense. He he just went up there and got the ball. It was, it was really impressive. But uh, back to Jalen Daniels. He had some moments this game. He ended the day with 249 passing yards, a touchdown through the air, one on the ground, and that was a very impressive touchdown he had towards the end of the game running. Uh, lots of effort. It would have been easy for him to just give up and say that this game's over. But, uh, you know, he shows a lot of heart. He did have two crucial interceptions in the end zone that probably cost his team the game. But nothing but respect for Daniels. He he seems like he can make football fun to watch in Kansas. And I'm not saying he's going to lead Kansas to some amazing record next year. But I'm sure the standard for fun football was pretty low in Lawrence, Kansas these days. And um He's a special kid. I'm kind of with you. I'm happy for them. And I'm I'm kind of excited to see him play again next year versus WVU. Oh, absolutely. And then obviously the um the man, the myth, the legend, I forget his first name, but Casey, the the tight end oh, yeah. fullback. He had a great game too. I was I thought he was kind of a meme coming into the game. I didn't expect him to be a big part of the offense. And he had something like 50 yards receiving and a receiving touchdown. Um, he had a big catch down toward late in the game to get them in scoring range. Um, so kudos to him. I mean, he looks more like an offensive lineman than a, a fullback or a tight end, but, uh, he plays hard, has soft hands, runs solid routes, and, um, definitely seems like he's earned his, earned himself a role on that team. Yeah, for sure. He seems like a gamer and, uh, you know, it's always fun to see the big guys, uh, having their, their moment in the sun because I mean, he's legit. It's not like they're just throwing him out there for gimmick plays. Like, he can make plays when he's on the field. Um, going yeah. to West Virginia players, Josh Chandler Semedo had a team high eight tackles, of course, as he always does, team high in tackles. But first two interceptions of the season, which looking back on those picks now, that might have been the difference between a victory and a defeat on Saturday. So just a solid season overall for Chandler Semedo, especially the second half of the season where we went four and two. I know there was times we brought up his coverage issues earlier in the year, but uh, overall, he just had a fantastic senior year, finished it with 104 tackles. Hats off to the senior. What do you think about him? Yeah, he had an incredible game. I mean, on top of those eight tackles and two picks, he also had a QB hurry, a tackle for a loss. Um, He was all over the field. And I feel like as the season went on, I noticed less and less, um, him getting beaten coverage. I feel like it's something that he worked on and he improved on. Obviously he's not someone out there 
that you can kind of trust like Luke Keekley or something like that to cover anyone across the middle, but he's, he was better um, than he, than he started out. And that's all you can really ask. Um, and he was definitely the most solid tackler we had on our team. I mean, he, he was someone that would make the tackle anytime he was around there. And I was really impressed with the way he played. He definitely won us the game defensively. Um, another guy I want to highlight defensively is Daryl Porter. Um, he had good coverage all game long. He had five tackles and two pass deflections, including one that could have been picked in the end zone. And you know, the one thing that always shocks me about him is that he's a redshirt freshman. I mean, the guy has such high potential. Um, he seems like a good athlete. He's already a solid tackler. He's I haven't really seen him get beat too often or and beat badly. So, I mean, think of him next year, the year after that, we might have a replacement for someone like Tyke Smith or Grayson Miller, who we were hurting so badly for early in the season. And he's developing into a real quality corner. Yeah, 100%. And with some of the concerns next year of filling, you know, who's going to fill all those linebacker roles next year and so on and so forth. It's nice to know you got a solid number one or number two corner that you can plug in there for several years to come. Absolutely. So that's all I got for the defense. You got anything else? Yeah, I got uh, one more person to highlight. Um, and we haven't really talked about him much this year. And I feel like that's kind of a shame because of the years he had previously. But Akeem Mesador, um, he had a sack, a tackle for a loss, and another QB hurry. Um, he had a couple plays late in the game where he single-handedly ended the um, Jayhawks drives by getting into the backfield, pressuring the quarterback, or just making a play from behind. Um, and I noticed they moved him around a little bit more. I know they're putting other guys in at defensive tackle more like Jefferson and the kid from Germany. I haven't learned how to pronounce his name yet. Um, Vestin, Vestingen or something like that. Um, and they're putting Messador outside a little bit more, which I think is something that's really good for him. He really excelled last year uh, whenever he was on the outside. Um, and I think that's probably his best position. He's not someone who can really come in and weigh 300 plus pounds like you need a inside tackle to but when you put him outside with his size his strength and his length he can really just bully guards and tackles um with his combinate with those rare combinations so um neil brown talked about pushing him outside last year or not last year but next year um and it seems like that transition is already happening again so um really excited to see what he does next year especially since we already have guys like jefferson who are huge and can handle that nose tackle role. So we won't be hurting too badly if he moves. Yeah, I'm with you. We talked about this a few weeks ago that uh, being on the outside probably is his best position, but he was just a team player and they were putting them wherever they could. Cause you want a guy like that on the field uh, and credit to him because, you know, I, we haven't heard any complaints at least out in the public. And typically if there, there are a lot of complaints in the locker room, eventually something like that might leak a little and, you know, I haven't heard anything. He's just a team player. He wants to win. And that's that's good to see because, um, you know, smaller schools like West Virginia, we were just talking about all those bigger schools who get the top recruits, who have big personalities. It's good to get a guy with a ton of talent like that who's just here to win and has that, you know, work hard West Virginia mentality that the fans love. So I'm really excited for him next year. I think he's going to have a huge year. Definitely. And the one thing I like, too, is that, um, you know, you have Mesador, but also um, the kid from Germany who I, again, can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try to butcher it again. But we have you know more players coming in from overseas and 
it seems like that's one area that Neil Brown and the staff feel like they can take advantage of as an undeveloped, untapped area of talent going out to Canada, where Mesador's from, and then Europe um, to bring in some different talent and see, you know, if that's an area where we can kind of corner for a little bit before the big dogs go over there and start cherry picking the top guys. So I really like the outside the box thinking there, and it seems like it's worked out pretty well for us so far. Yeah, one hundred percent. If the, if there's one thing you 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 everyone can agree on with Coach Brown is he can recruit. It's it seems like uh, he's got a good track record that he can bring in quality guys who can compete. So hoping for uh, big things next year with this big recruiting class. So you ready to get into the bowl game? Um, just real quick before we jump into that, I just wanted to touch on special teams, and you know we talked about the defense kind of. Um, having a pretty solid day. Obviously there are some spots where they had issues, but they held off a lot today. I mean, we had two turnovers. Um, we had two missed coverages by the special teams unit. Um, Lassiter had a big 21 yard punt return on a 36 yard Tyler Sumter punt. So it was kind of a double whammy um, that gave Kansas pretty good field position. And then with about five minutes left in the fourth quarter, WVU up by 13 points. Um, Logan Jr. had a 64-yard kick return um, after WVU kicked a field goal. So that gave them really good field position. And that ended up with uh that ended with Chandler Semedo getting a pick and another pick in the end zone. I think that was the second one um that really kind of helped um put out that fire. But um again, just kind of highlighting how good the defense was and um kind of disappointed because I feel like Special teams-wise, we have had a few issues throughout the season, but it hasn't really been that bad. Um, and having a missed field goal, a 44-yarder by Casey Legg, on top of those two kind of coverage gaffes on the return unit, um, just wasn't great, especially going into Kansas, because you don't want to get beat on special teams. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, they've been all right this year, like you said. So, I mean, that's why I didn't make any notes for them because it was definitely not one of their better days and I didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about special teams. Um, but I will say overall, it's been good because as we all know as WVU fans, it seems like special teams every year is giving up a touchdown or muffing punts. And I will say, for the most part, it hasn't been a big issue. So I do give credit to the guys who are covering kicks, uh, catching the kicks, and, of course, all the punters and kickers. They, they Overall, they've done a decent job. Definitely, yeah. I was just kind of let down because I was so – my, my head was starting to get used to not having to worry about, you know, letting up big returns at the worst time. And yeah. then those things happen, and it's Kansas, so you always kind of worry about, man, is this the year? Is this the year that we're going to lose to them? And thank oh, goodness no. it wasn't. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget the Holgerson year where we lost to Kansas. It's like you know you can have down years, but you still got to beat Kansas every year. Come on. Oh now. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So um, you, you, we were going to dive into the bowl game a little more, kind of debating on where we were going to go. But it seems like we can narrow it down a little bit today. Shane Lyons mentioned the guaranteed rate bowl. Um, you know, nothing's in stone. So this might change, but as of now, it seems like that's the favorite for uh, West Virginia this year. And if we go to the guaranteed rate bowl, we're going to have a big 10 opponent. Unfortunately, I've already seen some fans on Twitter complaining about it. This game's at 10 15 East coast time because the game's in Arizona. 
It's on a Tuesday. It's December 28th. So, you know, hopefully most WVU fans don't have to work the next day since it's around the holidays. But I'm sure a lot of people do, uh, which kind of stinks because obviously we have one of the best fan bases when it comes to attending bowl games and watching any game. And so um, if we do go to that one, it's a little disappointing it's that late because um, I'm always you know, almost prideful that I'm a West Virginia fan and we always have such high attendance. I'm afraid that'll knock it down, but it's interesting to look at. I mean, we could play Minnesota who, who uh, I believe is eight and four Purdue who's eight and four Maryland again, who's six and six or Penn state. And so some intriguing opponents there. Um, How do you feel about the guaranteed rate bowl? I think it'll be a a fun potential matchup. Um, Really, I think any one of those four teams would be, you know, a fun game to watch. I mean, Minnesota and Purdue obviously have the best record. So if we would go in there and be competitive or win those games, it'd be a really great showing. Penn State, I mean, that's kind of a old rivalry from the 80s. Um, So it'd be nice to reignite those fires. I know Pitt and Penn State play each other now. Um, I don't remember when their next game's coming up, but WVU hasn't played Penn State in decades, if I can remember right. Um, so, you know, just some great history there. And then Maryland, um, trying to avenge that first game of the season where we were trying to shake off some rust and obviously didn't have enough time left on the clock to, uh, you know, win that game. So, um, I like it. I mean, I I think playing a big 10 school would be nice. Obviously, um, you know, I'm kind of for playing anyone from either the big 10, the ACC or SEC, I don't not really a big fan of playing someone from the Pac-12 because there's really no ties there. Um, but you know, I would have no complaints about playing in that bowl game. Yeah, 100 percent Plus, you know, if if you're playing teams that are you know, maybe from the Midwest or from the East Coast, it's more likely you're getting eyeballs on recruits. You know, we don't recruit a ton of people over on the West Coast. So um, yeah, you make a good point there. But like you said, all the teams we mentioned, I mean, Minnesota's a solid team, Purdue's solid, Penn State's always got a solid team. So it'd be fun to play them in Maryland. Although, you know, at first, if you asked me, you want to play Maryland again in a bowl game, I'd probably say, no, not really. I'd like to see a fresh opponent. Just the storyline itself might be kind of fun because has that ever happened where you you played the same opponent in a bowl game? That it it would just be fun to talk about because it would be such a unique experience. The only time I could think of that was um, was that the year that we ended up not making the national championship and Alabama played LSU. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's and right. It was like back to back games too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was something really weird. Yeah. I think that was the same year that we lost to Pitt, which we won't talk about anymore. But Ugh, yeah, don't bring that up. <laughs> all right so yeah that's all i got on the bowl game we can talk about it more in a week or two when we uh you know get definite opponents but you ready for the good the bad and the hope yeah let's do it let's get into it so my good i i got three guys in here i'm cheating a little bit but uh since we're getting towards the end of the year my good is letty brown having a great game in his last regular season game of his career and possibly his final game of his career from the sounds of it Um, Tony Mathis having a phenomenal game, even though Kansas is not known for having, 
you know, this great run defense. In fact, it's known for having a pretty terrible run defense. I still love the way he ran the ball. There's there's no debate that Letty will be missed next year. But with the way Tony Mathis um, has run the football really this whole season, it wasn't like this is the first game I like the way he ran it. Fans should feel good about his replacements coming in in 2022. And also the third guy I want to give a shout out to is again, Josh Chandler Semedo, uh, getting his first two picks of the year, leading the team in tackles. It seems like every single week, just a solid senior season from him. My bad. Once again, allowing a team to hang around. I know this is nitpicking to complain about a win. I know uh, Kansas ended the year with three competitive games, but for once, I just wanted West Virginia to go out there and finally handle an opponent, not biting our nails all the way till the end. And they, of course, you know, played down right to the end and squeaked out a, a victory. It is what it is. The victory got us to a bowl game, and that's the most important thing. But, you know, if, if I'm being nitpicky and trying to find a bad for this week, I wanted to see a dominant performance and we didn't really see that on Saturday. My hope, I hope we play well in our bowl game this year. I know some Mountaineers will decide to skip this game and I don't blame them. I understand if they make that decision, but I hope the players who get opportunities to step up, I hope they play well. I hope our players stay healthy and we have a team that comes out there and plays well enough to possibly win the bowl game, or at least at the very minimum look respectable and it would be great for morale going into the offseason, much like uh, how we ended last year. I like it. Um, so my good is kind of on the same page as yours. I just said the rushing attack. Um, you know, Letty Brown, Tony Mathis, just so good. Just incredible the way that they ran the physicality, the way they're making people miss, the way they're punishing players who wanted to tackle them. They both had 44 or plus um, yard runs. Um, I can't remember the last time we've had a game where we had two different backs bust off big runs like that. So just really impressed by their game and um, kind of went into it in more detail earlier. So I'll kind of leave it at that. Um, the bad, um, I already kind of talked about this, but the special teams, again, um, wasn't super impressed by them. Um, just kind of, you know, letting Kansas hang around, giving them some explosive opportunities. Our defense having to come in and save the day obviously helped quash those fires but um you know casey leg missing a field goal that's within his range was kind of like oh man you know here we go everything's gonna fall apart um obviously it didn't so that was nice and then you know the coverage units not being on their a game for the day and you know no, no slight towards kansas you know their returners are pretty good um but you know you got to be prepared for that especially late in the game when you're holding a two point lead, you don't want to put them at, put the other team in really good field position to close that lead quickly. Um, and my wish, um, so my wish is going to be, and I, I'm not quite sure how to word this, but I want, I want kind of stability in the, the player base. So, you know, it, it kind of notoriously between the last game of the season and the bowl game is a time where you see a lot of players transfer. If, things are going poorly and with the way the season went obviously we turned it around but there's obviously probably going to be some players who aren't happy with how much they're playing or players who just didn't like the way the season went um so we've already seen two players leave that we haven't talked about yet parker moore and darius cowan and i completely understand why they're transferring but um there could be others and i'm kind of interested to see what happens over the next 
two, three, four weeks and see who ends up leaving. Um, because it could be someone small who's a backup that we haven't heard of, or it could be someone like a Garrett Green or a Goose Crowder, or maybe even, you know, someone like a Tony Mathis with the new running back coming in. So um, no one's too big or small to transfer out. And with the transfer portal the way it is nowadays, um, it's just something that always sits in the back of my mind to, to kind of worry about as kind of a, a mid-tier um, college school with some really good players, but um, also not necessarily the school that players feel like they need to stay at if things are going even slightly wrong. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how everything shakes out. I mean, it's just it's just the way it is. We're going to have some guys leaving. We're going to have some coming in. Um, it was unfortunate to see those two guys leave. I mean, Cowan, obviously a lot of WVU fans are kind of upset with some of the, the boneheaded plays that he's had this year. But uh, as we talked about earlier, we're, we're pretty thin at linebacker. Uh, so it's nice to have a body. He's He's got experience. So although, you know, that's not one that's going to break a lot of people's hearts, um, it does hurt a little bit. And then uh, Parker Moore leaving as well. Um, again, I don't think we're super deep on offensive line. And so as, as we were talking about earlier with the secondary, all the injuries, it's just good to have bodies who you know you can rely on if um, – if you have to. And so for that reason, I would say it's disappointing, but overall, you know, those aren't like um, earth shattering transfers. So I, I wish them best of luck. I mean, you got to do what's best for you. You only got a short window to play college football and, and those are memories you'll have forever. So anytime a kid decides to transfer, you know, you're, you're not going to get any hate out of me. I, I hope they get playing time and, and succeed wherever they go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, with, with Cowan, I kind of understand why he's transferring. It feels like he kind of fell out of that rotation with Bartlett stepping up and Dixon, just a whole bunch of young guys really showing progress this year. Um, so with all the talent, natural talent that he has, um, maybe it's just about finding someone who can kind of get through to him um, on understanding how to play defense a little bit better. Um, that would get him to turn a corner. And obviously that hasn't happened in the three years that he's been at WVU. And that's, Nothing against us, nothing against him. Everyone's different. Um, with Parker Moore, I kind of understand that too because he's battling with a true freshman in Wyatt Milam who is a you know big-time recruit coming out of high school. And um, obviously you're not going to win that job back because Milam played pretty well down the stretch. I know that first game we were talking about Milam um, against Maryland and he was just getting smacked around the field. You couldn't keep him out there and, you know, 10, 10, 11 games later, he's a completely different player. So um, kudos to Moore, though, because, you know, he was putting on a another jersey and he was lining up at tight end sometimes. He was out there playing. So he obviously didn't make a distraction out of it. He finished out the season and then went his own way. So I really respect that and I completely understand and uh, hope that hope him best of luck wherever he ends up. Yeah, 100%. Um, so that's it for us, guys. As always, thank you for listening. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Look for The Voice of Motown podcast. We're a completely separate page from Brad's Voice of Motown. So please follow um, Brad's page and our page. Uh, you know, leave comments. Let us know what you like about the podcast. Let us know what we need to improve on. And even though the 
regular season of football is over. We're not done doing football podcasts. We're, we're still going to cover the bowl game once we find out who we're playing. We're going to be covering any breaking news from football uh, because I love doing football podcasts. They're really fun. And plus, we're going to keep doing basketball ones as well. Basketball season is, you know, we got a long way to go. So lots of sports to talk about. So definitely keep checking and seeing if our podcast is up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys prefer listening to it. And so as always, thank you. Thanks, everyone.